0: Hello and welcome to Megacity Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comic 2000 AD. I'm Eamon Clark and my guest for this episode is a writer who's written for Marvel, DC, Doctor Who, uh, as well as the galaxy's greatest comic. He's also found time somewhere along the way to uh, uh, write and direct films and make bolognese this morning as well. It's James Peaty. Welcome to the book club,
1: James. Hello, Eamon. Thank you. A man of many talents. The Bolognese. We'll, we'll, we'll deceive that turns out well later on. <laughs> uh,
0: yes, uh, the proof will be in the eating later on. So, James, um, we start, as we always do on the podcast, uh, with new guests, with 2000 AD origin stories. So can you tell me about sort of your earliest experiences with reading comics and 2000 AD in particular?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think um my sort of route to 2000 AD was. Well, this book that we're going to talk about actually is probably one of the things that kind of led me to it, ironically. Oh, right, enough. okay. I was a big kind of comics reader as a kid. I mean, like, I read all the British books, you know, the titles Battle, Buster. You know, the the all at, right across the kind of a range of sort of IPC titles and reprint titles and the rest of it. But the one comic I never read really as a kid was 2018. Um, I was really into superhero comics as a kid, really into kind of Batman, Superman, reprints that you'd come across, the occasional sort of American book that you'd find on the kind of the bottom of a news agent's rack. Um, and I kind of was aware of 2018, um through the, when they started doing the best of 2000 AD. Oh, right. Yes. Yep. Yeah. The monthly, so you'd kind of pick those up and maybe the kind of the specials that they'd bring out. If you were on like a, a service station on holiday, um, you know, on the, on, on some, you know, six hour drive to Cornwall or something, like that, which we did quite a lot. Um, that you'd kind of pick something maybe see something there or you'd pick one up and maybe flip through. I could think what I, I can remember dread being the, probably the first thing I saw, so it might have even been the best of Judge dread right when they when they repackage those. I can't really remember. Um, well, I was always dimly aware of it, but I was never um, a reader of two thousand years a kid I was It was battle tiger, eagle, Roy of the Rovers. And I kind of got all those weekly. I used to get those posted through through the door with my mum and dad's uh, newspaper order. So I was a big reader of, you know, I was reading Pat Mills and John Wagner and Alan Grant and all these wonderful guys, but not knowing it. But when I was about 12, when I went to secondary school, I kind of got into American comics like in a big way and discovered comic shops and had a mate at school that kind of was into american comics and he mentioned something about this convention that was in that was on in london which was ukac oh right yes yeah yeah so we kind of went we had to send you send you sort of a clipped off coupon to get tickets sent home which was a badge um and we went to the to ukac in 89 so it was the year of the batman movie so it was this really big kind of event um and that was like sort of stepping into Aladdin's cave. It was like amazing. And obviously at that show, you had all this kind of, um, all the superhero stuff. You had like editors over from DC. You had a a, a big contingent from Marvel at that point. Um, You had Dark Horse, all these other indie comics as well. And obviously 2000 AD. So, and 2000 AD had panels. So we then kind of looked at, and I was looking, and I think the very first prog I bought is prog six fifty, which is the what the beginning of it's like one of the stepping on issues, and I think it came out a couple of months after. I think it's like November eighty nine, right? And I think it's probably the one that I that they kind of bigged up at the convention, and it got so it's a great one though. It sort of is. Um, it's the beginning of the dead man. Oh blimey! Yes, of course. I think it's the beginning of slain either book. I think it might be book two. I'm not sure actually. I've, I've lost the thing here actually it's yeah, the it's sl- I think it's Slain Horn God book 2 it's the beginning of War Machine you know the Road Trooper Dave Gibbons Will Simpson yes one. I think that episode is the beginning of Necropolis for Dread right and it's the return of Zenith blimey so it's, like, <laughs> it's kind of so it was like so if you're going to go for it it was like that was a great one to kind of um, go into so obviously I was you know from then on I was pretty hooked Um but it was from those people working and writing. And I was aware of Grant Morrison. I was aware of Pete Milligan. I was aware of Alan Moore and that through the American comics. So I was aware of the influence of 2008, but not really the, the, the comic itself. So it was a kind of backdated sort of entry. But you look at that issue and it's kind of phenomenal. So it's no wonder I stuck around for the next however many years. So, so. And then from there... Yeah, was there, sort of, the conventions continued for the next, you know, I, I went to I think every UCAT for the next four or five years, so it was all through the kind of boom and then the bust, um, but I was there when, you know, I can remember when they launched um, the magazine, you know, I was there, when I, so I bought the magazine right from the start and was kind of really into that. Um, So I think yeah, that's that's really sort of my entry point into 2008. And I kind of think in a lot of ways, when you go back and look at it sort of retrospectively, it was such a creative high point. It was such an interesting time. You had Revolver published around then. You had, you know, um, Crisis was still being published. Um, So there was this period where you had those that that sort of 2008 stable felt really kind of vibrant and very diverse. Actually, I think that's kind of what I was always really attracted to. Um, So there you go. That's. Okay,
0: fascinating. And those early the UKACs, um yeah, amazing stuff. And then, how
1: do you get, or when did you get your sort of break into writing comics yourself? When did that happen for you? Well, again, I think through the through the convention So, what I think one of the things I was probably I was either ne- nearly fourteen or just fourteen when I went to the first ukac Depending on when it fell, I can't remember actually the, the exact date. Um, but I went there, and the, one of the things that was amazing about that was that you know you were there, and there were all the creators. They were in the bar, you know, they were yes. wandering around. They were on the they were on the kind of stage. You could talk, you could you could touch them, you could get a signing, you know, you could talk to them. So that was really, I think that was huge for me because it kind of demystified the whole thing. And we're not just talking about the America, the Brits. We were talking about the Americans as well. You know, you had I remember one year Stan Lee was there, and he was on stage and performing and had the the crowd in the palm of his hand. So the whole thing was kind of, it was, it was, was, the whole thing was really demystified and very democratic and it was very, it had one foot in where sort of the fan thing had been before, but it was also at this point where it was becoming a much bigger deal. So it was, so you kind of saw both sides to it and that was really interesting. And then I think they did lots of, there were lots of sign-ins so you'd kind of go and um, sort of see creators there i remember going to forbidden planet one night i think it was around the time that ElectroLives lives again had come out and it was a frank miller and dave gibbons signing right oh right so I, I hung around for like the whole evening for like four hours and was talking to them both i got insulted by frank miller and i insulted him as well so it was all right <laughs> um, and, and dave gibbons was very kind um but it's kind of hard to imagine that you get that sort of access to those people today yes in the same way so that was amazing. But I think through the conventions, when I was about twenty, I was just going to university and I, I'd had a kind of year away from going to the conventions. I went back and it was much smaller because it was around the time of the big kind of recession within comics, the contraction. Um and I got talking to Alan Grant, um, who had been obviously writing Batman for years by that point, and I was I was a huge fan of, um, and Anderson, obviously. Yeah. Uh, um and I was talking to him about it all and um I said I was interested in writing comics and he said he gave me his address and I wrote a script and I sent it to Alan and um, he wrote back a letter, which was very, very kind, was very encouraging. Said said there was something there that I should kind of develop it. And then I through that, also that same convention, there were classes being run by the Comics Creators Guild for comics writing. So they used to run art classes that were kind of once a month, David Lloyd would come down. Oh, right. Okay. With, with students. So um, – and there was a kind of parallel writers group as well. So we were sort of around those people um, next to David. Oldby and Dave Gibbons used to come down and give a kind of odd kind of guest lecture as well. Um, so that's kind of how I got into it. I went to that group. I did that for sort of, I think I went for to, so I was at university during the day, studying in London, staying at home. And then I'd sort of go to the writers group once a week and just got into the habit of writing lots of scripts that weren't very good probably. Um, but got into the habit of doing that. And then around about 97, 98, I sold a pitch to DC Thompson who were still buying football picture libraries at this point. And the first things I ever sold to DC Thompson were, yeah, I I think I wrote three picture libraries in about 98. I was just sort of coming to the end of my university degree. Um, so yeah, no, uh, on the days when you had to send a script off on a floppy disk. Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: so I did. So I did that. I mean, uh, so we the group was good because they'd sort of give you a list of who was buying stuff, who was open to submissions, and um, yeah. So that was, and they were the obvious. A friend of mine had started selling Commando books to them around that time, and I wasn't really interested in writing World War Two stories. Um, but they were still doing a football picture library. So I thought, oh, I like football. I'll give that a go And Lo and behold, I did. And then the line was kind of canceled. Um, but that was my kind of way into it. And I think, uh, what was that, 98? I don't didn't think I sold anything for three years. I went back to university, I did a master's degree, sort of started teaching a bit. Went to another convention in Bristol in 2001. I got talking to the editor of, um, that was who was then the editor of Warhammer Monthly. Um, and I, he asked, he invited, we had a chat and he said, I said, are you open for ideas? And he said, yeah. And I pitched him and that's my first thing I sold properly really was then to them. And I did a kind of body of work for Black Library over about two years, which was probably where I did my, whereas I really kind of became a professional, I think. That's probably the best way to describe it, um, which was great. I got to work with people like Gary Erskine, I got to work with John Stokes, Um th- I'm trying to think of other Dave Taylor, but I don't think that ever came out. Um, I worked for PJ Holden on a strip that never came out, right? Um, and yeah, that was that was it really. I mean, that was when I, that was my kind of entry into it.
0: Okay, and of course, you've written for the big two. Uh, you've written. Doctor Who comics, The Road to the 13th Doctor, I believe. Uh, quite a bit of that. And then in 2018, you get to um, you get to write for The Galaxy's Greatest. So how did you get into, uh, you know, with Tharg? I think you started with a... Did you start with a
1: tri- traditional Future Shock? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was the way. Um, I'm trying to think if I did one or two. I think... Yeah, I, mean, I think what happened, it was through Doctor Who, actually. I did... Um, I've been out of comics for a long time I was in I worked for after my doing the Warhammer I kind of went and worked I through the conventions I met Bob Shrek who was then you the a group group editor at um DC on Batman and he kind of gave me my first sort of stuff at DC I did a little job for U Marvel US I didn't really ever I have i ever really worked for them the once I did a lot of Marvel UK actually for Panini um so I did that but it you know it's it so hard American comics it's, it's just you know it was Let's just say you you kind of felt it was a great thing when you were, first went there, but maybe that you got disabused of that notion very early on. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I was out of comics for a while, and then I kind of my my daughter was born, and I'd be making films and all the rest of it. And my daughter was born in 2013, and I started to think, well, I haven't. I'd like to sort of. To get back into that. So I actually ended up doing some stuff for Doctor Adventures for Panini, which was a comic. I got three things commissioned right off the bat as soon as I sort of like approached them, which I was very surprised at. <laughs> and then I was approached by them to do a, by the editor there, a guy called Jason Quinn, put me forward to a publisher in India to, I got this email out of the blue a couple of months later, invited me to write a 150 page graphic novel, um, which has just come out four years later, um, which um, was It was like, okay, I guess I'm back in the comics business. Um, Long story short, I got some work doing Doctor Who, and through that I got to work with, well, I got to work with Ian Colbard.
0: Oh, yes, of course.
1: On an issue of the 11th Doctor Comic. And obviously I've worked with Warren Police. So Warren Police, I'm doing a magazine series with. That's where we first kind of worked together. Um, But I spoke to Ian, and I said, no, I said, what's it like approaching 2000? Because I kind of, there was a thing in the back of my mind I'd always quite like to write for 2000 AD. I had a bad experience when I was about in, around the time I got um, my earliest stuff commissioned in the late 90s. I sort of had a Vector 13 commissioned and then decommissioned.
0: Oh, right. Oh, yes. Okay. It
1: was one of those days, one of those things. And I just kind of like, I'd written two drafts for script, never got paid for it. And I thought, sod you, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not bothering. And but I did think about that and I'd, and I'd, and I'd liked the stuff that Rob Williams, Tysburia and Al Ewing were doing on the 11th Doctor Comic that they were doing at the time and I thought, well, you know, let's try it and I contacted Matt, said what I'd been doing and he said, yeah, I'll look at t- Future Shot pitches and he, I pitched him two and he bought one. I did that. That was pretty straightforward. I did a second one I think I did a thriller. You did a Thargs thriller, Appetite, I think it was called. Yeah, that's right. I did that. And then I did another um, I did another Future Shock. I did three. Right. Uh, and then I, I met Matt at the London Comic Con, Super Comic Con, whatever it was called up at the Business Design Centre. Oh, in Sol- yes, I remember that one, yeah. I think it was August 2017. That would be right, yeah. Yeah, and I think I spoke to him there. That's the only time I've ever met Matt um, in the flesh. And I said, what are you looking for? And out of that really is what was Skip Tracer came from that. I mean, I think we talked about it in August, and I think I was writing the first book in October.
0: Fantastic. And now you've and, done three yeah. series of that now with, uh, I think, two with Paul Marshall and one with Colin McNeil,
1: is it? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I've actually done – well, there's four. Well, there's a fourth one done, right? Um, which starts sometime in early in 2020. Okay. Uh, and I just had – Episode two of Book Five approved yesterday. <laughs> Great. So, and there's another there's another one in. Put it that way, and uh, we haven't sort of. But we're, so I'm working through the th- the i fi- working through the fifth book at the moment. So. Okay. Yeah. And you've done Diamond Dogs,
0: as you say, with Warren Police in the magazine. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So that's that just finished, and I'm
1: halfway through Book Two at the moment.
0: Great. <laughs> right. Well, we'll talk towards the end of the podcast when we get to guest episodes about you know stuff you've got coming up. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that you can, can talk about but also I guess you might be able to give aspiring writers a few hints yourself as to you know, how to crack the process of getting in but we'll come to that yeah yeah sure let's get to today's book because it's an interesting one which I confess I'd actually not come across tell me what you've picked for book club
1: I've picked uh, Screamer by Pete Milligan, Brett Ewins and Steve Dillon um, and other people as well but that, those are the headline creators yeah so, it's not, I'm not surprised you haven't heard of it. It's not the most well known. So, let's give some vital statistics. A uh, six issue miniseries from DC
0: Comics in 1989. Yep. As you say, Peter Milligan, Steve Dillon. I think Dillon is inking Brett Ewins. Here. Yes, that's right. Tom Zuko does the colours. Tom Frame, nice to see Tom Frame is the letterer. Um, yes. And Karen Berger and Art Young were the editors. So tell us, first of all, why have you chosen Screamer? And then perhaps give us a little outline of the plot, because this one may not be familiar, although it's some great 2008 AD names there, but it, it yeah, may yeah. not be
1: familiar to, our, to all of the readers. Well, that's why I chose it, really. I mean, I think it's one of the books that really sort of drew me towards AD because of who was involved in it. Um, it's probably the first time I ever saw Steve Dillon's name. Right. Oh, yeah. It was a really great. I remember. It, well, I remember it that being at that convention and it being, if not launched, being teased. And I remember buying those first issues. And you've got the floppies, so you'd see how striking the design of those comics is. Yes. Um, so it's really that period where it's not just the British invasion; it's just where comics are kind of going somewhere different um, and really embracing kind of uh, really striking design and you know packaging and all the rest of it. Um, and then also you've got the story. I mean, the, the story is, you know, is a, if you want to sum it up, it's really, um, it's kind of, a, I think, I think the pitch when it came out was it was a retro future gangster epic. I think that's what they called it. Um, so it's kind of, it's a, it's a book that's very sort of out of time um, in the way it's told, but also what it's about. So it's sort of a, um They talk about, don't they, I think in the introduction to the trade, um, I was reading, Brett Ewins wrote in, I think in 2002, they talk about the influences being from Once Upon a Time in America, the Sergio Leone film, um, The Long Good Friday, obviously the great British gangster film. And obviously the thing that makes it really interesting is this kind of massive kind of, and I guess is where sort of Pete Milligan comes in, is this massive kind of uh, influence of James Joyce and Finnegan's Wake and all that kind of stuff, so it's this really kind of heady brew of pulp, science fiction. There's a kind of big religious element to it as well. It's uh, it's but it's really about the kind of, uh, so I guess, the classically the sort of dystopian post apocalyptic um society. Um, it's set in a world, it's set at the beginning, is it 38 after the fall, is what they call, yeah, they say. So we don't really know what that means, do we at any point in the story? It. It's never, the, the past is not really, but essentially the modern world has sort of devolved into this kind of sort of, it's a halfway between sort of like escape from New York and sort of the 1930s gangster film. Yes. That's um, yeah. kind of how it, that's sort of the, the feel of it. And it follows the cap, lead character, well it doesn't follow the lead, the lead character, the, the title character is Vito Screamer, who's this kind of monolithic kind of crime boss in this era, and it follows his, well, it follows his story through the present, but it also goes back into the past. It's kind of there's about it's about his two kind of friends, you know, um, slash enemies, um, Dutch Schultz, who's a who's a young black guy at the beginning and becomes his kind of right hand man, and Victoria Chandler, I think is her surname. Yes, She's, that's right. Sort of, the other becomes the other kind of rival my boss. They're all friends as children who come together in this kind of wasteland, and then together rise to power through these sort of um, they're called the sort of the, they're the presidents, the, the, the heads of these kind of gangs, these crime families that are kind of running things. And S- S- Vito is kind of this sort of inscrutable character who is utterly brutal and utterly kind of. Um, uh, ruthless as he rises to the top but he's kind of what motivates him is very kind of elusive but also very much tied to what the book's about which is kind of free will and predestination and all these kinds of things um but parallel to that as well there's also a story about you know there's the narrator of the story is someone who from the future so the future that we're watching in this story is also the past (laughs) yes there's a whole kind of yeah so it's about it's a lot, it's almost like a tall tale in a way, and the Finnegans Wake, which is um, obviously Joyce's one of Joyce's most famous books, a book that has no beginning and has no end. Um, famously, I, one of the most difficult books in the English language possibly to read. Absolutely, yes, absolutely yes. So um, Finnegans Wake runs through the, the sort of the, the, the kind of the DNA of this comic, as well as the kind of the, the drinking song, Finnegans Wake. Yes, which. Is, Kind of in it recurs through the sort of story as well, and obviously the the other characters in this are the Finnegan's. So they're they are they, it follows the story of uh, Charlie Finnegan at the beginning, who's a kind of uh, just a poor guy in this world. He's no special person, and it's about the kind of moral compromises that he has to make along the way. Um And then his son's role in Vito's empire, and then ultimately we discover that the the narrator of the book is his grandson. So there's a kind of familial link to the story, but also a familial distance. It's a really kind of, it's a really, I think it's one of the most kind of literary comics. I think when I was a kid and I read it, obviously I didn't really, I kind of got that, but didn't get it. But when I go back and reading it now, it's a really, it's a really kind of, um, I think it's a really important book because I think in lots of ways, what it sets up is kind of what Vertigo would go and do and define as they move forward. Um, Which is very th- interesting,
0: because it does feel like a Vertigo book, although it isn't, it, you know, it's it's what,
1: four years before Vertigo becomes an official thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's four years before, but it is creator-owned. That's the yeah. interesting thing as well, and I think there's a thing, I don't I saw Karen Berger being interviewed, it might even be on that extended one that's on the Future Shock documentary, or maybe the podcast she did for the Thrill cast yeah. a while back. She talks about how she'd read it recently, and it's like, but it's a proto vertigo book. I mean, what the deal that they had to do kind of create her own books and stuff, this is kind of where it begins. There, there's another one, isn't there? There's a Jamie Delano and John Higgins book that came out around the same time called World Without End, right? Which I think is also another title that they had the rot had rights to, um, which they started to publish, which was published in a slightly different format. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah.
0: You get the push from i mean, you're getting the push from the British creators who were after creator-owned comics, and then the pull from Karen Berger, you know, from America, who were looking for the next wave of the British invasion, I guess, at this point. And you know, here's Milligan and Dylan's and uh, Ewan—sorry, Dylan and Ewan's—who are going to go across and do this comic. Uh, yeah, so as you say, a proto-vertigo-type title, and it's yes. fascinating,
1: isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, and I think it's. Um it's self-contained story. It's got no kind of. It's that classic thing. It was. It's almost. It's written for the trade, isn't it? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. So uh, there was a trade which you've got. I've got the floppies, uh, which I like to get off eBay. But that was, you know, they were fairly easy to get hold of. Um, I read it once, and then I read it the second time. And mm. as you say, I think when you you know reading it the second time, the, some of the literary themes uh, become clearer. Some of the time jumps and flashbacks become clearer Uh, yeah yeah and I also noticed of course the chapter titles are taken from this sort of folk song drinking song of
1: Finnegan's Wake so as well so there is that that runs through it as well yeah no it's definitely um you look at it it's interesting I think you can see this there's a lot of there's a, even though it's, it's obviously it's not it's a long way from what he'd write. There's a lot you can. There's a I don't know. There's a there's a sense of what Garth Ennis would go on and do as well. Um, in sense in, a, in the way that, that, that I mean obviously there's the there's the Dylan connection, but also the kind of the Irishness of it. Yes. <laughs> it's very like if you think back to you know when you when Preacher comes along and when he's we're working on Hellblazer together. Um, there's a there's a similar kind of thing that they share, even though this is a totally different type of story, there's something that, you know, I don't know if, if how aware of it, Ennis was really, um, I imagine he must've been, cause he would have been very young and probably looking enviously at working for DC. <laughs> um, but that, it, I think there's, I think it shares something with that. There's a kind of, a kind of lyrical kind of quality and a very earthy quality. Actually. It's a, it's very different to some of Milligan's other work. I think, yes, it's weird. It's strange, but it's, it's rooted in something that's much more tangible. Yeah. The world, the type of story is much more tangible. It's not him doing Enigma. It's not him doing like uh, stuff like Shade the Changing Man. It's 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 not a, it's not got it's got a metaphysical edge, but it's not dealing with the supernatural. Yeah. In that, in that. And there is
0: a sort of the story through it of Vito Screamer, this sort of mm. the huge imposing gang boss, and his rise from childhood to where he is, and his plan that he's got towards the end of the book but you know Mm. so yes but as you say Peter Milligan would also I mean I guess both best known from 2008 for creating Bad Company uh, yes um, but also he he would go on to do Shade the Changing Man Enigma was a very strange comic I remember from Vertigo Um, yeah and Steve Dillon you know you could see this being his almost his gateway to Preacher from this couldn't
1: you oh yeah yeah well I think this was his first work for DC I'm pretty sure this is his first work for DC and I kind of remember I think it was maybe when he died there were a lot of obviously a lot of interviews people talking about him working on it and I think there was something about him he really pulled the stops out in terms of keeping the book on schedule so this really made him kind of popular within the, the hallowed halls of DC comics um because I'm not sure how long after this, but he, he then went on to draw Animal Man, didn't he? Not long after this. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, he did an Atom special, I think, but he did. Animal Man is his first kind of ongoing American book. Um, so, and I guess it must have been very close to this. I think it was probably about 19. Because Milligan wrote Animal Man for six months after Morrison left, and then he did it with Tom Veitch, uh, Steve Dillon. Um, and I think that he did that and then obviously sort of segued onto Hellblazer later on. But this, I think this was very much the thing that they kind of knew they could trust him. Um, and he'd deliver and maybe Brett Ewins, that wasn't the case. I don't know. um, Yeah. And it's everything as well is that we're talking about a book now where two of of the three main creative team are not with us. Sadly. Yeah, I
0: know. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Both died tragically young. Um,
0: Yeah, it is it's sh- great shame. So it's it's a story, as you say, a post-apocalyptic New York where there's a gangs who run everything and there's this character Vita Screamer. But of course, as you say, there's the childhood story of the three friends who become yes. uh, not necessarily friends in their business dealings later on and the Finnegan's sort of story running through it all which becomes much clearer, I think, particularly, as, as I say, the second read-through. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Before we go uh, talk about multiple timelines and flashbacks, let's <laughs> just turn for a moment, because we've mentioned Dylan and Ewins, to the artwork. And they do some interesting things, and I think also The Colourist adds quite a bit to this book as well. Yes,
1: yes, very much so.
0: Um so particularly, I mean, you know, as we say, we've got Steve Dillon inking on top of Brett Ewins. We've got some very distinctive looking characters with sharp corners to their faces and in the case mm. of Vito, scars and so on, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Very, very much so. It's, I mean, I think if you look at the early, I think if you look at the end of issue one, there's a kind of big splash page, isn't there, right at the end? Um, where Vito comes in to kind of get Dutch spoilers. Yes. After he's, after he's had his face eaten by a rat. Um, and that, to me, that just looks like it could be... It's That is like a, the, the lineage to Bad Company is very huge there. <laughs> yes. So, yes. Like Kano, it's very, very similar. It is that.
0: a very similar look to Kano as he comes in because Screamer has this big scar across his face and he's huge and he's got a huge gun and he just steps through the door, as you say uh yeah so that is a fantastic image
1: there's steve dylan as well that's that's, that feels very him it's got that kind of sort of scale to it i think steve dylan's work in generally is much more kind of intimate isn't it i think it's more yeah the the nuance of storytelling is really there with him whereas i think Ewin's does these, these amazing kind of images that's why that's why i always think of his work right but it's an interesting fusion between the two I was trying to find out from people how how the sort of workload was broken down but I wasn't really kind of couldn't really get any, get anyone to kind of uh, <laughs> get back to me yeah. I don't know ask John McRae because I, I know obviously he was very close to Steve um how that works, but he's, he's on a, he's on a deadline, so he couldn't do it. But I think, I, I as I think, I think you can see more of Steve Dillon as the book progresses, <laughs> probably as it gets, as the deadlines kind of get more and more hairy. Right. I mean, the penciling becomes a little bit less, um, detailed.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay.
1: Savings.
0: And I've mentioned Tom Zuku the colorist, because he has to do. Yeah. He has to do that thing in comics where you depict flashbacks. D- yeah, Depicts uh, different stories, and there's a couple of them. There's the, you know, there's the three friends having a rough childhood and growing up to be, you know, gangsters. Plus, of course, we've got the Finnegan's family story weaved or woven in throughout as well. Yes. Uh, I think he does a mixture of sort of, should I say, sepia-toned coloring and some there's some yes. more fundamental just sort of like brown brown wash uh,
1: coloring for some of it as well yeah 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 no it's very um and also you're talking about a book that was obviously colored pre-digital i don't think dc had gone to any of those kinds of uh processes by this point even though this was i think this is if you look at the the comics you've got i think they're. it's a deluxe format isn't it quite glossy paper it is yeah on the. It is. Yeah,
0: it's it's got you know
1: nicer paper yeah they used to do that at the time. There was a lot of kind of mixing around with. I think there was the new format. There was the bog standard newsprint stuff, and then there was the. I don't know if it was a deluxe format. I think it was called, which was sort of below the prestige format, the dark knight format. Um, so this one, I don't. It was one of those books with which had a paper stock that was very very different. But I don't know. I think computer colouring probably came in a little bit later. Yes. So I I thought that it's you know you're looking at something that's really analog yeah. <laughs> in the way it's created. It's which kind of gives it a, a unique kind of feel, especially when you compare it to kind of modern comics, something I which you just digitally kind of um, fiddled with to the to to death. So yeah, there's a real there's a kind of I think the colours are very um, striking. I think that's the thing with them. they they're very the colours when they do use colour, it's kind of very. It pops, yes. The contemporary stuff, yeah. but it's very hard. You, but you know, he does a he does a good job. I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's the most successful part of the book, if I'm being totally honest. Coloring, right. Um, in terms of the time frames and everything else, but I think it's a, it does the job. Right. Uh, there's probably more better ways of doing it. I think if you look at compare it to say what John Higgins did in Watchmen,
0: yeah.
1: I don't think it's as good as it's as sophisticated as that. Right. So okay. Yeah, sure. I was
0: just struck by the way, the, you know, the techniques artists use to depict flashbacks. And I'm always taken when Carlos Soskara used to do the, uh, you know, he'd use a very light line to do some flashbacks in some of the dread stuff in the apocalypse war and so on yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, to show you what had happened earlier that we weren't privy to at the time, but this is interesting. But of course it raises the question for the writer, for Peter Milligan, and of course for yourself, for your own work, um, you know I mean ostensibly it's a story about the rise of one man to the sort of top of this gangster organisation and a plan he yeah. has but there's much more to it but he's you know he's got to peter milligan's got to deal with the multiple time structures the flashbacks yeah, um, yeah. the ongoing narration from a character who's he, even for this story is in the
1: future for this story you know well, we never see him do we he's completely disembodied yeah
0: so I wonder what you thought about that, um, both with what Peter Milligan's done with it, and also how it would, you know, what you think about using it in your own writing. Is it something that you've that you've had to do? Is it particular? Is it uh, straightforward to keep all those
1: timelines going in your head? Depends what you're telling. I mean, I think I think the way that Milligan writes this is very. It's very the, the what he's dealing with is very kind of they're kind of heady sort of literary ideas, but they're very filmic ideas. The way it's written is very filmic, and it's very much the cut. The cut is like he, he doesn't sort of. I mean, if you Watchmen is kind of the classic thing for like moving through timelines,
0: yes.
1: But Watchmen is a sort of unbelievably controlled piece of work. So the kind of use of it is if, and not necessarily just page to page, but the way it moves within the kind of the clockwork kind of structure of that of the page itself and chapters themselves it's very very you feel very much that you're kind of um that it is a clock jeweled clock structure you know it's like it's not uh, you never feel kind of confused in that whereas I think this is much more like I mean it doesn't surprise me that Pete even went on to write movies for a while because I think that they're the type of things that he's drawing on here, while you could say once upon a time in America is an influence, obviously, because it it's got that time frame thing of young characters and older versions of those characters. I think actually if you look at the type of storytelling, it's much more like something that Nicholas Rogue would do. Um in things like Don't Look Now, in things like Bad Timing. I think where Milligan's coming from is much more kind of it's a much more kind of esoteric end. Um much more um i think actually christopher nolan's the way he cuts films is much more like sort of screamer right that, say what say alan moore and watchman it's sort of it's playing with that sort of thing i think he's i can see from the things i've done when i've done when i've made films and i've made a bunch of short films that idea of time all of time happening contemporaneously is something you kind of can do in film much better than you can in any other medium um, in that you can jump and cut and move around and sort of, even if you watch rogues films and I, Nolan is the most obvious kind of mainstream kind of exponent of this, but you see this in C- Stephen Soderbergh's work in something like the limey or in something like, um, the underneath, which is another film he did, which doesn't particularly work actually that well. Um, but in the limey in particular, you've got it kind of, the time frame is completely shattered. Um, and I think that can work really That really works well in cinema. And I think what he's pushing towards here is something that's very, very, that's really kind of bold. It's a really bold piece of work in terms of what he's doing structurally. And it's clearly all been worked out as well. <laughs> it's not something that's been done arbitrarily in this. So I think it's, I, I mean, I think it's a really impressive piece of work. And when I look back at it, I see how I think, God, I've, I've obviously stolen loads from this. <laughs> <laughs> down the years consciously or unconsciously you know but I think that's where where it's going I mean and I think that's sort of and it's something that Milligan's done in other work as well he's, he's done this a lot I think the Enigma plays with that quite a bit in places um but yeah here it's got this sort of the the way that it plays with time and the way it plays with kind of shifting perspective and um I think the, the having the sort of narrator sort of as a disembodied voice is very, it's very Joyce. It's very Beckett as well. It's kind of, yes. Yeah. And there was a, there was a, I don't know if you heard it. There was a Beckett, there was a season on radio three, I think earlier this last year, actually of some of Beckett's kind of weirder stuff. And, um, I got into a discussion with Matthew Sweet, the, the BBC. Oh, journalist. Right. Yep. Yep. I know Matthew a bit through doctor who, because yep. you know, it's back to doctor. Who. Um, <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> And he was asking me about what as a, as a comics writer about Beckett and Joyce because of the, the relationship between Beckett and Joyce as well in their work and the whole thing about cutting and movement. And we were sort of having that conversation. And I can think, I think this is really, this is kind of the comic that kind of embodies what we were sort of this discussion we were having about that. And I think if you look at Beckett and you look at those kinds of things that he was doing in theater and in, in poetry, that's what Milligan is kind of pulling on. And it's really interesting as well because one of the re- another reason I picked this book is that as a kid, I think Pete's work really is a kind of, was a kind of gateway to a whole world of literature, and cinema and culture that you wouldn't have otherwise had. And that was and it came about partly. I remember this happening, this book coming out, me being aware of his work, and I can remember the deadline doing an an issue where he interviewed Anthony Burgess. Oh right, yeah, he, and a, and I was I must have been fourteen at that point and like suddenly you've got this, all this stuff kind of coalescing culturally um, about what comics could be, but not just that, where people who created comics could go and what the influences coming into it were. And so I think that, I mean, and I think that's obviously what we have to kind of, you know, Steve and Brett as well. They're the huge influence they had on shaping um, the kind of cultural antenna for a whole sort of generation of comics readers. And I think creators so I think it's a really powerful book for that reason as well, because of what those guys represented.
0: Yes.
1: Uh, so I think the whole thing about time and everything is, I think it's, it's um to go back to what we were saying, is I think you're, it's, I think it's that they're coming to it with a kind of, a level of sophistication and a level of ambition. That's kind of really what it is more than anything else. Um, and bringing into the, into the kind of vernacular of comics, something that's much more, um, Well, I think pushes comics forward for the next 25 years. I mean, I don't think you get, you know, you, 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 you know, I don't think if you, if the books like this didn't exist, I don't think you'd see Christopher Nolan playing around with Batman. Right. Because I think that's where he's, where he's, and I think I've read as well that the one comic he read as a kid was 2000 AD. Yeah. Yeah. so all that work, whether it's more, whether it's these guys, whether it's all that, I think that's the pull that that brings all that into the mainstream of cinema later on. When we're talking about this kind of big sort of superhero thing, so I think it's kind of massively important and had a huge impact impact on the on the way that kind of mainstream storytelling has changed. Because if you look at it now, we're all much more inured to sort of stories that jump around. Yes, and there's so many of them at the moment.
0: I was thinking about that when I was reading this the second time. You know all the TV and films at the moment, a lot of the genre stuff seems to have these jumps, and some of them are some of them are perhaps concealed jumps that you know, then yeah. we don't know about up front and we have to figure it out. But others just, and even you know, like an adaptation of Little Women that uh, Greta Gerwig has done now, um, takes you know something new from the book and actually starts moving around in time, as it were,
1: well, going yeah, backwards I- and forwards. I-
0: let me go and see it tomorrow. Right. So,
1: so, um, yeah. Well, no. I think I think it's interesting is that the vernacular of, of, of storytelling has shifted. I think it can also cover up a multitude of sins as well. Right. And I think people who you people do use it who don't kind of use it as a way of getting out of corners that they've painted themselves into. Sometimes. <laughs> but it's it. But yes, the the way we look at stories, I think, is is has changed radically. I think maybe because now, as well, I think with television and and film, it's the advent of digital technology, which means that everything's much more plastic in terms of the way you can sort of manipulate things, more manipulate time. So it's to you, if you were going to do those kinds of things like Rogue was doing in the nineteen seventies, um, you had to be a lot more precise about what you did because you were cutting film, you were doing it in a very kind of hands-on fashion. I think today it's much easier. And certainly if when I've sat in the edit, you kind of, the, the ability to move things around is uh, important. And I think also that's had an effect in writing as well, because it, it's, you know, it's the same thing moving from say typing on a typewriter. <laughs> you know, if you make a mistake to um un, to undo that mistake is quite used to require a lot of effort um, or starting again. Whereas now with word processing, you can do that as well. You can move things around. You can kind of, Oh, that scene maybe works better there. So I don't. I mean, so it's. It, I just think the nature of it is the whole thing's become much more fluid, um, and this is. But this is a book that was sort of doing that well before that was possible. I guess Arkham Asylum is another book that does that as well. Yes, that made all, Which, all the money. <laughs> yeah, that made all the money. <laughs> Which is another really interesting comic in that respect, um, and I think the fluidity of that is partly that's down to Morrison's script, but I think a lot of it's down to McCain's art. Yeah. And that pushes the kind of breakdown of the kind of the, the rational. And that's and all there, isn't it, that, that Morrison's playing with those things about the irrational versus the rational. Um, and I, but I think that that's, and I think that's the thing that a lot of those writers of that period were playing with. Um, but I think McKean kind of takes that and does that diff, in a totally different way. I love that story that M- Morrison envisaged it as being a book, Arkham Asylum as a book that would be drawn by someone like Brian Bolland. Oh, right. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a very straight kind of comic. And yeah. it was, McKean's art, kind of just, he says, I don't want to draw a Robin, and the and it goes from being a sixty-four page story to this kind of big sprawling one hundred and twenty page kind of artwork, yes. piece of pop art, is and that's kind of really, I mean, that's really interesting as well. I mean, I think that, I think they came out the streamer issue one and probably and Arkham Asylum probably come out within about a month of each other, right? So nineteen eighty nine is a really crucial. <laughs> sort of moment for all of this stuff um not just because of the batman movie but all these comics that are coming out around it as well so it's really um yeah i think the language of comics changes quite radically Yeah.
0: i think it's fantastic it's a fantastic and interesting time because as i've said we've got the british invasion going over to write these american comics and uh perhaps just bringing things you know a slightly different way of doing things um as you say, Watchmen had changed so much, although the uh, the time jumps in there are very structured. They all seem to be, in Watchmen, it's always like looking at a photograph or looking at an image or something that takes a character into yeah. a flashback and then brings it back to the same object often. Whereas this, with Screamer, we've got like these three different stories being told in a way, yeah. uh, <laughs> weaving through the book, um, which is fascinating. Yeah, interesting times. And of course, Vertigo is just what, three or four years away from this title when they would, um, DC would very bravely, I think, bring a lot of this stuff together under one imprint.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, in some respects, I remember being at a convention years later, about 97, and they did a Vertigo panel. And there was all the Vertigo creators were there. Morrison was there. Milligan was there. Karen Berger was there. Julie Rottenberg, who went on to be one of the writers on Sex in the City, who was an assistant editor, was there. Stuart, I think Stuart Moore was there. And I remember saying, I asked a question and the thing, I said, don't you think it's kind of a shame that it's all been kind of hived off? Because I think one of the things that happened with Vertigo is it made mainstream comics worse. Right. No, super interesting, yeah. Made superhero comics worse. Not very good right. <laughs> for a long time. And I, me- I remember it was at that thing. I remember talking to, I was talking to Grant Morrison at the end of it, and he said, Yeah, I'm do- I agree with you. He said, I, I think it's all got to be back in the the mainstream, needs to be more vibrant. And that's why I'm doing this Justice League thing. And I was like, What? Is that an Elseworld? And he goes, No, 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 I'm doing the Justice <laughs> thing," And it was like, What? Okay. <laughs> I mean, obviously he didn't do it in quite the way that he would have done it 10 years before, but that was interesting as well because that's sort of around the time that you see Warren Ellis coming in and doing sort of stuff in the mainstream with the authority and all those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, it was, um I think it did make, the. I think it did make mainstream comics worse. I think because they kind of, I mean, it's, it's you know, you can't knock the, the creators. were will get were will get, will, will offered a great deal, and they did some amazing work during that period. And they don't owe anything to those corporate trademarks. <laughs> That's not what they're they really in it to do. Um, but I I think it did, I think I think it made I think it probably in the long term made Vertigo a more ghettoised brand as well. Um, because people always forget that the Sandman and was very much rooted within the whole kind of DC world sandman mystery theater that they published was kind of a you know was a dark version of a golden age crime fighter yeah uh that they were kind of re- dusting off those old ips and i think yeah I, I don't know i think it was it was a it's a it did a great thing vertigo don't get me wrong but i think it also did kind of make the rest of mainstream comics a lot poorer
0: unintended consequences
1: yes yeah, definitely
0: so, as I've said, I've got the floppies, you've got the trade. I get the benefit of all the house ads inside the floppies.
1: Oh, which are wonderful, aren't
0: they? They are. They're so of their time and they're so wonderful. And it does look like a lot of DC's superhero characters were going through some very dark stories at the time.
1: I'm What's not... in there at the moment? What's in there? I'm curious. So see I'm what... seeing articles
0: or adverts for The Question and Green Arrow and uh, Nightwing... And I think somewhere else, Hawkman, all having sort like dark, gritty
1: Hawk. stories. Is it Hawk World? That's it is
0: all. Hawk World. It is. Yeah.
1: Tim Truman prestige format thing. I remember. I I bought it. I remember it. Yeah, I think uh, is the Question and Green Arrow when they were doing that crossover. They were doing a crossover. Yes. The Detective Comics. Yeah, yeah. There's all written by Denny O'Neill, I think. Yes, that was a, that was a very um, Denis O'Neill. That's right. You're very, it's well done. Good knowledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, I remember it. I can remember the. There's a detective comic story. Then it goes into Green Arrow, and I think it finishes in the question, or it, or it's the other way around. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, Green Arrow was a mature readers comic at the time, wasn't it? I mean, it was. Uh, yes. It had been relaunched after that Longbow Hunters thing as a like
0: Grell thing. Yes. Yeah. Which
1: ran for a very long time. It ran for probably about seventy issues or something like that. I mean, it was. Uh, um and then you had Yeah, The Question obviously was a book that ran for quite a long time and was very, very um I found it always found it very stolid, I have to say. Right. Uh, I like Dennis Cowan's artwork and I like the character. Um, but it was always not and it was never my favourite book. <laughs> okay. So, um, it does I don't think it stands up particularly well either. I mean I think it's um if I'm allowed to say that. Um yeah, those yeah, it's one of them but they that is it was kind of indicative of the, of what they were publishing at the time. They did a lot of um uh, yeah, the DC books went a lot darker. There was a lot of that stuff there. I mean, interestingly, Pete Milligan was right wrote Batman for a year. Yes. I don't know if you've ever read those. No, I don't think I have. There's a trade of them that came out maybe a 3 or 4 years ago. Right. And they are fantastically mad. They're mm. brilliant. I mean, there's there's a three-part one with the Riddler which is really great. Drawn by Kieran Doyle. That's kind of a that's a, that has covers by that had covers by Mike Mignola, which is really good, actually. That one. Um, and then he did a then he was he wrote detective comics for I think a year and he did some really great, really odd stuff. Um And he's the guy who came up with the idea of what became ultimately Nightfall, you know, where they broke Batman's back. Oh
0: yes. Yeah. Okay.
1: (laughs) He was in the, he was his, why don't we replace Batman? He he, he meant for like about three issues, I think. (laughs) And they spun it into a two and a half year, whatever it was, a massive crossover. Um, But yeah, I think he was doing, I think he left detective comics because he got shared the changing man became an ongoing book. So um, that was sort of where he went, but um, his work on Batman is really, really interesting. It's really good very very it's a lot like what Morrison would do when he came and did it years later there's a lot of that in there Um, in fact I think Morrison even picked up on some of the stuff he mentions 25 years before whatever it was so yeah it's a big big a big uh, yeah it's a big period where things DC in particular take a lot of risks at this point they do a lot of some of them pay off some of them don't but they there's loads of really mad books there's things like Doctor Fate that the the J.M. DiMatteis book which is a great comic, which has never, I don't think it's ever been collected, drawn by Sean McManus, which is fantastic. It's so, it's really funny, but really dark and really, and, and you've got all that stuff with the Justice League, the Giffen and Demetrius Justice League that's sort of happening at that time, um, where you've got, so you've got these really kind of strong, different tones of books. You've got all the Batman stuff. You've got all these kind of, you've got these funny superhero stuff that's going on. You've got these incredibly dark things. It's just, it's a very, very vibrant time fascinating i'm
0: looking at a batman trade batman dark Knight, dark city by peter milligan
1: that's the one yes, yes. all right okay i might have to have a look at that
0: yeah yeah that's well,
1: well worth it it's interesting is that quite a lot of them are drawn by jim apparo so they're kind of drawn in a very classic batman style, classic batman style. <laughs> oh and you've got him kind of dealing with sort of cross-dressing uh killers and uh siamese twins and you know psychic episodes it's, it's like david lynch doing batman
0: <laughs>
1: yeah so let's take you back to screamer
0: for a moment anything else you wanted to say about this particular comic before we go on to play
1: grail pages and so on i think i mean i think it wouldn't it is i mean i think what i mean i felt rereading it i hadn't reread it for years was that um that it's just a really it's a really strong piece of work. I think it's a really interesting piece of work. I mean, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. I think that's, I think that's the thing that kind of um, that struck me about it as well is that it's really uncompromising. Yeah. As you said about having to read it a second time or reading it a second time, you got a lot more from it. I mean, and I think that's really kind of what makes is the measure of a really good piece of work. Yeah. Is that we can all have that kind of you know. We're on a great date. It's a wonderful kind of evening. We we had a wonderful time. And then you go and revisit and you think, you look at the pictures afterwards, you think, oh, that wasn't so good. Uh, (laughs) Or you go and watch a movie and you think, I mean, it's like, I mean, I'm not going to diss them. I'm not going to get on the Martin Scorsese side of the debate. Um, I find it very difficult to rewatch Marvel movies, I have to say. I can enjoy them at the time. I enjoyed Avengers Infinity War. I enjoyed, you know, Captain America: Civil War. I enjoyed Avengers Endgame, all that, you know, when I saw them. But I kind of have no desire to ever rewatch them, right? Um, because that's just not, you know, what you, you what is being yielded to you is going to y- be yielded in that initial experience, and that's fine. That's 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 that. There are those things work on that level, and that's absolutely fine. But I think. For me, the kind of books, the movies, the TV shows, the plays, the music, whatever you whatever you know art form you're talking about for me, the stuff that maybe is that you have to engage with and invest in in more you know more time and detail is the stuff that's ultimately more rewarding. and I think this is a really rewarding comic. Um, and I think it's a really it's rewarding in lots of ways as well when you think about what those the people involved will go on to do. Um, I think what you said about Steve Dillon, you know, going on, you can see, you can see what he would do in Hellblazer. You can see what would happen with with Preacher and that. Um, yeah, I just think it's a, re- it's a book that really, it paves the way. I think the fact is what it's creator owned as well is really important yeah. before it was a, before that was ever a thing really. I think it's sort of – and how many of those sort of creators did those books that people don't remember? I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's co-owned by Tom and, and Brian, but I don't know if you've ever read The Naz. Uh, I heard of that one. I don't think I've right read Talbot it. Drew. Right. Which Tom Veach wrote, which is another – it's a four-issue prestige format miniseries. I mean, uh, I haven't read it for years, but it's beautifully done by, um, by Talbot, but it was beautifully drawn. Um but just these really odd things that exist, these really odd comics. I mean, it's. I think what it what I what really comes away from it was how bold Karen Berger and Jeanette Kahn were. Yeah. To commission this stuff. I mean, they weren't fucking around. <laughs> they were going for it. They. I mean, they they really went for it. I mean, and they, I teach a course on the history of the graphic novel at a business school. I I, I teach at, and um, one of the things when you look back at that period when, when Jeanette Kahn came in and then when it kindly kind of fruition, the big change is about content. Yeah. The, 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 there's content here. There's, there's content in terms of what the story, not just what the plot is. And I think a lot of the time that's what people kind of focus on is what the plot is. What, what, what's here is not just the plot. It's about what the story is. It's about what, what's about. Milligan's trying to tap into something very human in, in this and i think that's sort really of the thing about you know pre free will and predestination consciousness past you know the tu- you know the, lo- the loss it's about death and absence a lot a large part of the story um screamer is kind of screaming in the void that's kind of why the what he i think the thing that he gets where Milligan takes that name and takes it to sort of some other kind of place is, is that. It's that he brings all this level of subtext to the work. I mean, I remember talking to, I won't say who it was. It was a, it was a quite a well-known artist. Um, and we were talking about um, writers. And I think, and we were saying that maybe, you know, people like Alan Moore and Grant Morrison, as talented as they are, are just very, very good at selling themselves um, in, the, in the marketplace. And maybe that's always, maybe Peter Milligan isn't hasn't been or doesn't care about that and I think that's kind of true but I also think that I think he's one of the most adult writers of comic books that we've ever produced and I think if you go back and look across his kind of career I think what he what he was doing in terms of adult and adult comics and sophistication if you look at this if you look at Enigma if you look at face I don't know if you've ever read that and I think that might be the single best comic that Bertio ever published um, it's a 60 page special like drawn by Duncan Fragrino, Right. written by him about plastic surgery and art and it's body horror and it's all of these things. And it's just about, it's a perfect little kind of a perfect story, a perfect comic, perfectly executed, perfectly done and completely adult. There's no concession to kind of, you know, uh, dumbing anything down within that book. Um, and it's also a horror comic as well, so it kind of does those things. It's like I think Milligan's got more in common with people like David Cronenberg. He's our David Cronenberg, right? Fascinating. Uh, that's what I'd say is that I think, and I think he's kind of under. I think he's under. I think really, what I would say more this is he's probably the most underappreciated creator from that period. And I think in a lot of ways, if you look at the American writers that work, that are working in comics, people like you, Matt Fractions, and all that, I think they're as heavily influenced by him as they are people like Alan Moore and Grant Morrison. That would be my take on it.
0: Great stuff. So uh, Screamer was a trade, a Vertigo trade paper back in 2002, which you've got, which I think has got a Brett Ewins introduction to it as well. It that- does. Um, But sadly, seems to be out of print now. So you're going to have to track down second-hand copies or the floppies from eBay uh, to read this story. But it is, you know, it is as I say, it was one that passed me by, but it was fascinating, and particularly the second read-through,
1: I really sort of uh, thought, blimey, they were really doing some stuff here. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, no, I think that's right. I mean, that's the thing that's kind of so striking. Yeah. Uh. So, James, a grail page or two or a cover maybe from this collection, what would you have? Right, well, it, from the collection. Well, I think I would choose the cover of issue one as a cover because I think, if or if not the cover of issue one, maybe the cover of issue two. Is that the one with them walking towards the – Yes. Yeah, maybe the cover of issue two. That would be maybe that one okay. as a cover. I think kind of sums it up. I think, and it's kind of it's a very that's a very late eighties cover as well. It's kind of perfect sort of embodiment of of that sort of stuff. Um, I think the end of issue one, the the splash page we talked about earlier on, um, where he's coming in with the Tommy Gun over Dutch lying on the kind of cruci like the cross with his, with a, with a cage on his face. Yes. I love that page. I think that's great. That sort of sums it up. Um, and for me the big the big splash page with the where Charlie's in the church with the cross. Oh um, yes. Forty five in the trade I've got here, which I think is maybe issue two. It is, yeah. Yeah, which I think is a kind of that for me is sort of those sort of two images maybe sort of sum up the book for me.
0: Excellent. Well I will grant you all those in the Grail Page game and they go into the Grail Page gallery as yours now. Thank you very much. I'll pick I'll pick another splash page. I was tempted by the cover of Issue 2 as well, but actually page tough. 3 of Issue 2 is another splash page of Screamer, this time where he's carrying Dutch's body. Yeah, I
1: nearly picked that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so that's another lovely image of him. So I will post all these pictures on the socials and the, uh, the forum and the Facebook group so people can see what we're talking about when the episode comes out. Yes. Splendid! That's screamer. What a, an interesting choice. Um, so, James, we've touched on it a bit. It's guest projects times. So, you've right. got more skip tracers coming out in 2020.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: And Diamond Dogs will return to the pages of the magazine at some point as well.
1: Yeah, we're uh, yeah we're sort of. I've, I'm halfway through the second book of that, and there's one issue, two issues drawn. Two episodes drawn, I think. Right. With Warren Police again. Warren's back, yeah. 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 So, cool. And Paul is back for the next Skip Tracer. Uh, Paul and Marshall
0: I think as well, yeah.
1: Marshall's back for that, and I think it will be Paul doing the fifth one as well, I'm pretty sure. And I think Dylan Teague is colouring the fourth book. He did, he did the first couple of the third one, and then I think he had other, he had other work. He left us, but he came back. Um, so he's doing all, I think he's doing all of the fourth book which you obviously Quentin Winter came in and did some really nice work on the on book 3 um but yeah Dylan's back for this one um so that's I haven't seen any colored pages yet I've seen it penciled so I'm happy with that it's quite a different one we sort of do maybe sort of doing a slightly different quite different they're all they're all you know they're not it's, it's in 2008 what can you say it's all, all the same <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it's comic. um but we're doing a slight some slightly different things and and i think there are things that we start to sort with i think the stories in skip tracer so far have been quite standalone but they're starting from this one i think they're becoming a bit more kind of interconnected right deliberately, deliberately so so um there are plans but you know you know you you never want to say too much before they they're in the print so (laughs) um so there's a, a thing that we're kind of certainly a thing we're building towards i think in that over the the subsequent books and uh yeah and i think the same for diamond dogs as well that's that's sort of what we're kind of doing i think the second book of that's quite different to the first one so yeah i'm i'm sort of I'm, I'm i sort of close my ears to the what the, the what the reaction is out there i don't go i don't do any of that stuff <laughs> okay <laughs> that, that, that way madness lies yeah. so uh you just kind of do it and sort of follow it through uh but yeah we do so that's sort of developing i mean diamond dogs was kind of one of those things that was just really um came, it came from I, well, I had the idea we were talking about doing it and then Warren police got in touch with me oh right at working together because he liked working with me on Dot2 so we did two we did two issues of Dot2 together right and um he said I don't know if you are and I said to I when he said I'd be interested in working with you I was thinking well I'm doing this I mentioned it to Matt and yeah he went and did it and it's great because it's full war and he kind of it's, he, he's colouring it as well so it's a very it feels very much you know you're not quite, it, it feels very much our thing yeah <laughs> and I think well, that, that's what we'll do we'll, we'll, we'll do it for as long. I mean, I've got ideas for a few others. I don't think, I'm not sure how long it would run for, but I think it, we've got, I've certainly got ideas for a few, for some other adventures um, or stories, should I say. I wouldn't say it's an adventure strip, it's not really. And that's interesting. I've enjoyed work, working on that in the magazine. The longer page count is great and it's nice to play in Dread's World, which I've never done before. So um, that was a, that's been a real kind of thrill. So yeah, I'm very pleased with that. I'm pleased with how that first book kind of came together,
0: I think. Well, I look forward to them both coming back, both the prog and the meg. And any other projects that you can tell us about at the moment or hint about for the
1: the coming year? Well, I'm doing another thing for 2008 at the moment. Right. I'm doing a thing with Mike Collins, which is a just a thriller. Oh, lovely. Yeah. I like I like doing them. Yeah. <laughs> like the idea. I like doing three part story. But more the future shocks are, are good fun to do, but they're if you have a kind of idea that's kind of a, a, sh- a shorter idea, that's, it, I think there's, it's nice to play in that kind of, um, that's slightly, you've got slightly more space to play with um, uh, with a thriller. So, and I've been talking to Mike for years about different things, you know, partly because uh, we've known each other through, um, you go to conventions for years, you know, friend, known, uh, people who are friends with each other and, and obviously Mike is now one of the main storyboard artists on Doctor Who um so we sort of have spoken a lot about that over the last few years um because of the different sort of uh issues. and i love i was a big fan of mike's work when i was younger you know the captain Britons and the yeah uh, the other stuff that he, he did at you know the star trek stuff that he did as well you know over at dc and the stuff he's done at AD as well i mean so yeah he's a he's someone i've always and always liked mike a lot and we've kind of been talking about things and we had an idea it came together very quickly and we kind of sent it to Matt. He said, yeah, he commissioned it. So we've, I think we've written one of those. It's off being drawn at the moment. So that will come out, I guess, at some point this year. Um, for 2008, that's it. I think for 2018 in the Meg, um, I mean, I spent most of 2018 writing Skip Tracer for the, for 2000. That's yeah, pretty much all I did for 2008. Diamond Dogs means I can, I can kind of mix it around a bit. Um, I've got some other stuff that's sort of, was talking to, a couple of, uh, I was sort of valiant about something, some other bits and pieces. This graphic novel I was telling you about is out, that came out. It actually was out in India at the end of last year, but it's actually going to be out in the U.K. and the U.S. in, I think, February-March time. That's the plan.
0: All right. Well, this will come out first weekend of uh, February, this
1: episode. So what's the what's it called? It's called Chanakya. It's a, it's a historical kind of graphic novel. It's a, it's a story about well, he's basically the Indian Machiavelli quite an interesting case. so it's set 400 BC so it's set during kind of the around roughly around then it's set during the period where India is sort of basically invaded by Alexander the Great's forces and it's about how the kind of disparate principalities of um, of what becomes India begin to unite and kick out the kind of imperial oppressor or the invader should I say is he wrote a book which is very much a kind of uh a precursor of the prince by machiavelli all right yeah um, which hadn't been you know lost which was lost for hundreds of years and then was discovered and um so it's a character in in indian kind of uh culture that's been fictionalized and kind of memorialized in lots of different ways in lots of different forms there's some debate whether he's one person or was he a couple of people is he a so it's a So I was offered this, and I didn't know anything about it when I was asked to. Would I consider this project? And I looked at it, and I jumped at it straight away because it's. I fancy doing something that was much more historical, uh, and I wanted to do something that was more. Um, that was partly an adaptation as well because I had never done one, and some of this is adapted from a play, a Sanskrit play that was written, obviously, hundreds of years ago, which was translated into English in the 1950s so the kind of the middle section of the book is kind of taken from that but the top and the tail is sort of um, not and it's very much it's got my chance to do something a bit by Claudius right. Okay, <laughs> so, which I love which I'm a big, fat, big fan of and so it was a chance to do something different and it's I'm, I'm really pleased with the way the book's turned out it looks really looks great by um, Rajesh Nankalunda who's the, the t- Indian artist we had spent a long time waiting for the right artist to be free and we did the right thing it looks like it's a Sergio Toppi type uh book so it's 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 a lovely looking piece of work black and white 150 pages yeah so that should be out yeah roughly february march time through campfire graphic novels so i'm really pleased with that um
0: okay well if i can put uh links to this stuff in the show notes i will do for all of your stuff Uh yeah yeah which is great and I'm meant
1: to make another film you know I think that's the other thing I'm doing as well I'm supposed to be you know, beginning of February I'm meant to be shooting a thing for a friend of mine who's, a, who's an actor for show, some of his showreel stuff but we're actually going to kind of shoot another short as well so I'm sort of getting ready to do that and I've got another one that I've got kind of lined up for later this year that I'm going to do um, I had a feature script that was in the Fright Fest New Blood kind of competition which was, from, which was uh, interesting at the end of last year so I have got lots of different things going on it's always but like all of those things it's it depends on which one lands first. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> throw it all up in the air and lots see where. Lots in the fire. And will you be right. at any comic conventions in 2020? I imagine I probably will be but I'm not sure at the moment. I'm not um I've not committed to anything. Um I've done the one at Olympia the last 2 years so right. it's been quite fun. I haven't I might, I was at MCM just before Christmas. I've never been to Thought Bubble. Oh,
0: right. Right.
1: Uh, Oh, so um maybe this year would be the time to go so that's a, that's possible um it i was keep talking. very good this year in it's new venue so yes it's very yes, good well, the new venue looked interesting i thought it looked yeah. uh, was everything much closer to
0: everything much closer together and it worked yeah. very well yes there was a lot of people yeah it was very friendly and enjoyable and of course it has the 2000 ad writing competition for aspiring writers oh. So any sort of gems of advice for writers who are looking to get that first uh, Future Shock commission? Future Shocks.
1: Um, I mean, I think the guidelines that they give you are probably as good as you're going to get because yeah. they, they kind of know what they're talking about. Um, I think the thing I would say is don't hold anything back. I think you've got to kind of put have an idea that you can – turn in a story that could be a longer story don't feel that you should like come up with something that's kind of a bit half-hearted to fill four pages Do you know what I mean you've got to, I think you've got to commit to that completely so it's got to be quite full of stuff you know you should be kind of straining to get it all in there yeah uh, it's a very I mean I think it's very different today than it would have been you know back in the day if you look at like the days of two-paged future shocks and stuff <laughs> like that that the Alan Moore's and the Morrisons and that were writing, um, Neil Gaiman, all those, and Peter Milligan as well. You know, there, there's, there, you could have a kind of, I wouldn't say a thinner idea, but you could, you could kind of have a gag. If you read, um, I was looking at the, the collection of Alan Moore's stuff that they brought out through the Hachette. Yes. The, the other day I thought, that's great. They've all under one, one, one cover. I'll get all those. You read those. And some of them have beautifully drawn gags you know, you wouldn't be able to get away with that today. Sure. So I think you've got to kind of put in a lot of um, work at the idea, Fight, come up with an idea. And I think with a future shock, it's more about you having an, an initial idea that's a good idea or a good hook is one thing. You've then got to spin that hook. I think you've got to kind of make sure that that hook turns and continues to turn and continues to turn and, you know, try and get some world building in there, try and, I think you've got to, I mean, I think the thing I would say about writing for 2000 AD full stop is it finds you out. Yeah. Um, I'm very glad I've come to 2000 AD when I've come to it in my career. I think I was, um, it was the right time for me as a writer to come to it. I probably would have not done particularly well if I'd done it when I was younger. And I think I've become a better writer for writing for 2000 AD because you just learn about, you've got no space. You just have to make sure that you get to it as quick as you can. And it it sort of stands out. I mean, I, I might have – writing for 2008, I would say my admiration for John Wagner is, <laughs> is so huge. Yes. Um, now, I mean, it always was. I mean, I think America, you know, obviously just they've just announced they're going to re-release it again um, in this graphic novel. I reread that just for Christmas, and I remember reading that when it came out in a magazine and thinking that was magnificent and rereading it again, it is magnificent. It's absolutely magnificent. But I also reread Necropolis not long ago. Um, go back to what we were saying at the beginning about Prog 650, that kind of road to that. Yeah. And how he and Carlos managed to produce that level of quality for what, 30 plus weeks. Yeah, it's astonishing. It's, it's astonishing. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. Um, and it is a mar- I think it's a masterpiece, Necropolis, in a way that people don't really kind of appreciate I mean, because it's so good. I mean, and it's been it, the the way you've got all that kind of big cast and all those strands that he was playing with for years, and half of it he's probably making up as he goes along. But also, it's planned. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. kind of he never loses the fact that the he never loses the the present tense of it, and I think that's just And I love that. I thought Guatemala was fantastic recently. Yes, yeah, last year, 2019, yeah that I'd thought that and I'd really enjoyed the stuff he's done with Colin in the, in the last years so you come away from that and you just think well wow these guys are great I mean I think as well the other underappreciated one is Alan Grant yeah. go back to him sending me that letter I think if you go back and look at those Anderson stories that he was writing after their kind of split when they stopped working together and they took this they divided up the, the, the stuff between them that was Anderson story. I think the, the John's work on dread on his own and and Alan grant's work on Anderson in that period is so powerful and so brilliant and kind of not it, the brilliance of it is not really appreciated I don't think because I think you get the kind of there's the kind of the stretch the the, the, sort of the depth of what John's doing the, the humor the darkness on the rest of it and then there's the, just the humanity of what Alan was doing it's just amazing and they were doing that on these you know on a really on tight schedules, they're turning these things out really fast, and they're just brilliant. And it's like they're those guys are amazing. um And I think there's more good writing that's been inspired by John Wagner and Alan Grant, maybe, than I think Alan Moore has inspired a lot of bad writing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so look yeah, to John so, Wagner and Alan Grant. I would say definitely look at them. Look at look at what those guys have done. I mean, I think you just you. Especially in that kind of golden period of of, of 2000 AD, The, the stuff is, the quality is so high, but particularly I think when they go their separate ways, actually, I think that's when they really kind of become something else, something really special and really kind of, the form, I think the form is so hard for 2000 AD, those five pages. Yeah. uh, yes it is not a lot of room as you say Uh, it's totally different when you come to write for the magazine as well so you really i think you really need to study what do these do what do good future shocks do what do good dread stories do what are good episodes of um whatever your favorite series is in there you know that really works i mean i think if you go back and reread zenith i think zenith's a great strip i mean in terms of the tightness of the writing um those, especially those, I mean, there's only four books of it. But if you go back and look at that in the way that it that it's structured per chapter, like that book four, the one that's not really kind of ever really talked about um, in the same way, if you look at it structurally the way it starts with every kind of episode with a page, which kind of introduces the kind of world that they're moving towards, it's kind of, this, it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, so I would say look at the best. And I think that's true of any kind of writer. What I always say is look at the best, never look at the worst. Yeah ever go for the best only ever look at what the, the best people do because that's what you learn from um, and that's how you'll get better fantastic well James uh, thank
0: you so much for being on the podcast my pleasure it's not too I, often I, I, an,
1: I too much you know
0: no no it's not often we have a 2000 D podcast that mentions both uh, Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce and Machiavelli's The Prince in one podcast <laughs> <laughs> well
1: you know you've got to kind of mix it up
0: mix it up a bit
1: Just just an ordinary day here <laughs> <laughs> cook a body of ice, fix, fix a washing machine and then talk about finnegan's work
0: perfect and we'll be in the prog with skip tracer before long as well i think it's march i think that's bad fantastic so thank you to everybody for listening to us on megacity book club uh find out all the details at megacitybookclub.com uh email me podcast at gmail.com get in touch if you want to talk about this episode or an upcoming episode or choose a book to come on the show yourself And that'll do us, James. Thank you. So until next time on Mega City Book Club, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's time for goodbye. So goodbye from me and...
1: Goodbye from me.